This is Ibarianex, and this is The Candid Frame. Longevity as a photographer is always a tricky thing, because though passion can bring you into the game, it's other circumstances and other choices that determine whether your entire professional life revolves around photography. It's not just about longevity. It's about having a career that evolves and changes and allows you to be your very best. That's a career to aspire to, to be proud of. I think that can be said of the career of photojournalist David Burnett, a photographer who for decades has established himself as one of the world's best visual storytellers. Whether it's with images of politics, sports, or conflict, David has made it his life's work to get the images other photographers couldn't. But it's the story, and not just the image, he's often in pursuit of. It was a lesson he began to learn as a young photographer photographing the war in Vietnam. I mean, I say the one interesting thing for me at the beginning of my decision to go in 1970 was John Derniak was in the editor, photo editor at Time magazine, and he could be a pretty tough customer, but he, he uh, always appreciated when photographers would come to him with ideas because I think he felt that, that an idea was something you could never replace. And when I told John I was going to Vietnam and I, was, I didn't know how long I was going to stay there, he decided, I think really just as a favor to get my airline ticket paid because I bought a, a San Francisco-Saigon one-way ticket. Just cause I didn't know if I was going to stay two weeks or two months, and I ended up staying two years. But I, I went to see John for the last time before I left, and he gave me a big box of film, which was a, a real gift because film was hard to come by in, in Saigon. And he said, uh, okay, give you a $500 guarantee. And the day rate in those days was 125 So it's basically like a four-day assignment or guarantee. Uh, he said, do, do a story, children of war. So I, I said, well, John, uh, what exactly do you No, And he just cut me right off. I was trying to figure out where he was going with it. He said, no, no, you're the journalist. You tell me what's going on. But David is known just as well for his photographs of major events, including elections, disasters, and especially sports. His iconic image of runner Mary Decker moments after she was accidentally tripped at the 1984 Olympics is one of the best sports images ever made, while at the same time capturing a personal moment of grief and loss. Every other photographer at that event hoped to capture a moment of elation and joy, but it was a simple choice that led David to make an image no one else was able to capture. For me, it was, it was just a chance to be somewhere different. And the, the funny thing about, that's one of those stories that is a, uh, an, an example of how chance plays into everything because, you know, I didn't have a great idea of where I wanted to be. I just wanted not to be at the finish line. Well, Neil Leifer, who you mentioned a minute ago, Neil, one of the great sports photographers, he was down, I don't know, he had set up for something he thought was going to be the magic picture at the finish line when Mary Decker is finally going to get her gold medal four years after the U.S. team was denied the chance to be in the Olympics at Moscow. We boycotted the games because of the Afghanistan invasion. 
Walter Yost, another great sports uh, photographer for Sports Illustrated and others, was over at Turn One where Mary Decker's mother was. And he was going to get the embrace shot and the, get the flag. And, you know, this is the beginning when people were just starting to get their country flag and run around the track. Dave Kennerly was over at turn three. It was a late afternoon race and the last little bits of light, really nice warm light would be hitting the runners as they came around turn three. And I was just like between turn four and the finish line, happy to be out of the finish line area and just take, you know, taking what I could get. We'll talk to David about his lengthy career and how he managed to get some of his more famous photographs and also about the one that got away. Welcome to The Candid Frame. Well, David, thank you so much for for making time for me. I've been following your work forever. Oh, well, thank you. It feels like I've been producing work forever, <laughs> but... <laughs> Yeah, the old creaky joints uh, issue. Uh, it's amazing to me that, you, that you're still plugging away and making images that really is inspiring. One of the things that always struck me about your work, and even more so as I was looking, um, looking at it, getting ready for this interview, was, you know, with photojournalism, so much about the image making is about telling a story. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about getting enough elements within the frame to help in, in either a singular picture or in a series of pictures, reveal the narrative of the event, the occasion that's happening. And then there are photographers who, who are able to do that, but are also able to create a really pleasing-looking image, you know, in terms of the way they use lines or the shapes or the graphics. And you're one of those photographers that have always struck me at being able to do both and do it do both very adeptly. And oh, thank you. And and I, and I and I not all photojournalists are able to to do that. And I, I wanted to start with sort of having that conversation about when you are photographing something. You know, you're obviously there to sort of be able to, to tell the story. But or how did you develop the sort of sense in terms of trying to make a photograph that not only tells a story but that visually is a, a, a strong and engaging image? I think it's interesting that you bring that up. Uh, so much of what we do, I think, is completely uh, intuitive. You mm. just kind of do what feels right, and it's much less pondering and how am I going to attack. I mean, there are moments when you, act, you obviously do that. I think sometimes I probably miss a moment because I'm so concerned with how am I going to structure what I have in front of me in the viewfinder. Mm-hmm. And make a picture that when some like magic moment, you know, it'll be at something at the White House or something, there'll be some little moment when Brezhnev and Nixon clink glasses of champagne at the signing of, a, of an accord or something. And I'm just kind of, I don't know, I was like, I remember thinking when everybody was talking about us, like, did that happen? And everybody else is, is like talking about it. And I'm just kind of thinking like, how did I frame them? in the frame that made sense. So I know that I occasionally will miss a, a moment, and it's, I suppose, sacrifice because I'm trying to see from a purely photographic, less historical and more visual construct point of view what it is I'm trying to go for. But, you know, that, that's like a four-hour conversation, I think. It's like, yeah. how do you... How do you uh, 
You know, because I, I do believe much of what we do is after a while, after you've been doing it a while, there is a certain intuition that just takes over. Like you walk into a, uh, a room where the gymnasts are going at it at the Olympics or something, and you look around the room and you can figure out in about 30 seconds where the pictures are and where you might want to go. And then there's like another five-minute deal, which is, well, those seats are already gone because there's a whole flock of 20 guys that are all lined up to get people coming through and vaulting off the horse. So where else can I go that will be an interesting picture and it isn't with like surrounded by other photographers? I mean, the, the uh, gymnastics is one of those things because there's so many things going on at once and you're mm-hmm. trying to figure out, am I going to do the vault? Am I going to do the bar, the, the parallel bars or what is, I, whatever that big solo bar is called? I forget what the name of that is. But there are just, you, uh, gymnastics is really interesting because you have four or five or six things going on at once Mm -hmm. and then you have to run that problem through your head where do I want to be how do I set up where do I go for a picture and in my case I've been lucky enough that in most cases when I'm doing these big sporting events it's less about who won the gold medal or who won first and more about taking a picture which puts a viewer in the place of understanding if you'd been sitting with me, that's what it looked like. Yeah, I was wondering how the fact that you were often competing with other photographers for any variety of different kinds of images, how the, the need to sort of distinguish yourself in terms of your imagery compared to those, how, did that sort of inform the decision to try and make an aesthetic, uh, an image that was le- leaned more on aesthetics? I can look back to, say, 15 years ago where... This was really the dawn of the everybody starting to shoot digital. I mean, by the you know the ninety like maybe nineteen ninety nine two thousand, you had the beginning of autofocus digital cameras. Mm-hmm. I didn't even buy a digit my first digital camera. I think till oh three, but you could see it coming. And I mean, I was a for forty years. I was a Canon guy and. We all had a 17 to 35, a 70 to 200, and then I didn't have, I didn't use a 2470, but basically those three zoom lenses kind of put you in a place where you could more or less cover everything. One of the things I started to feel was that even though everybody was taking their own version of a situation, that there was a sameness to the technical way we would look at the pictures. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started to, to shoot more with my Holga, and I took a, my 50-year-old speed graphic out of a closet where it had been gathering dust, and I just thought, let's try something else. It was the beginning, actually, in '03. It was the beginning of the Iraq, the build-up to the Iraq War in, in 2003. And I, I went to a Senate hearing where Rumsfeld, who was then the Secretary of Defense, and all the generals and Paul Wolfowitz all the brainiacs behind the Iraq war. And I thought, there's, let me see if there's some other way to look at the same thing that we're all going to be shooting. And this mm-hmm. was a room full of photographers. And I shot a few pictures with my speed graphic with just the old 127 lens that was on there, a little bit of tilt, baby tripod, trying to just see if I could see something in a different way that everybody next to me was seeing it. 
and it just took off from there. I, I started I started shooting with that speed graphic, and actually in 03 into 04, you had five or six Democrats who were going to run against George W. Bush, starting with the um, the Iowa the Iowa caucuses mm-hmm. and going into New Hampshire and the whole uh, presidential process. And every time I would shoot something, and you can still get, this is what breaks my heart, is that you can still get Type 55 Polaroid, mm. the most beautiful black and white film. It was ASA, like, 12 or something. I mean, it was really, <laughs> it was like, if, if the ASA is the equal to the grade school that you graduated from, I mean, it was slow film. But it was beautiful. And what I found was I could take that Polaroid and... And then Tri-X, that was sort of the backstop, was to shoot it on film. But I could make pictures, and then I'd run home. And the great thing about Polaroid is I could go home, peel it, you know, run it through the processor, peel it apart, have a print, have a negative, clear the negative, and, and make a scan and send that to either Newsweek, Time, or U.S. News. And that year, every time I did that, they'd buy a picture. So they were kind of like, I think, also looking for something that had a little bit different feel to it. So for me, it was, that was really cool. I could, I could shoot another way. I mean, I was standing next to 10 other guys, and we're all shooting with the same digital cameras, but I also had that 4x5. And every time I did something with that 4x5, I made a deal out of it. And finally, Time Magazine just said, well, this is stupid. Why don't we just put you on contract? Because every week we're buying your pictures anyway. <laughs> so that was a great deal. And, and from there, I discovered, uh, as I started to do research about how can I shoot with something other than a 127 f4.7 lens, that's when I discovered the, the Aero Ektar, which was the aerial recon lens mm-hmm. that Kodak made in World War II for the uh, recon cameras. And 178 millimeters. So I went from shooting like a, a 38 millimeter to shooting a 70 and f2.5. So now I could take a 4x5 camera with Tri-X and shoot it like it was a Leica at, you know, a 30th at 2.5 with Tri-X, which meant on John Kerry's campaign plane, I didn't need lighting. I didn't need a tripod. A tripod was always nice, but... I I could start making pictures with that 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 not only were different than what everybody else were doing, but because of the inherent self-inflicted difficulties which shooting that camera added, I had to start thinking more about what I was going to shoot. Mm-hmm. You couldn't shoot 50 frames. You Maybe you had a four holders, so you had eight frames. So you really had to be careful about what you were shooting. And, you know, people used to say, well, that's like tying one hand behind your back, isn't it? I said, it probably is. But when you have one hand behind your back, you have to really think it through a little bit more other than just pop a couple of frames. And so that, for me, was a real point of departure, going back to, you know, in the digital age, starting to shoot these this big film camera again. It was just, it was great. I, I loved trying to reinterpret the same old things that I'd been looking at for years and doing it in a, in a kind of a, a different way or yeah, approaching when I, it differently. When I look at those images that you shot that way at the Olympics or during the campaigns, they just really stand out. They're beautiful, Thank but you. they really allow you to see a scene that you see over and over and over again when you're you know, doing during those events. Mm-hmm. Like you said, they're very similar to each other, but those are very, very distinctive. 
But when I was thinking about your, your, your pictures in terms of how different they are, I go back even before you were shooting mm-hmm. digitally, and there's one image that really struck me, and it's an image that you shot at the state funeral of Juan Perón, mm-hmm. which is an overhead right. shot of his open casket. And I look at that image, and I've seen overhead shots like that primarily in sports. I think I think the mm-hmm. Neil Leifer uh, photograph of Muhammad Ali after a knockout. Right. Right. Ali, Cleveland, uh, what was his name? But yeah, that was yeah. that overhead and that shot yeah. was just, I just thought, not only is it sort of a unique perspective, but uh, it's a unique perspective at a very unique event to get that. And I, I really wanted to hear the story about how you gained the access in well, order to make that photograph. That's, a, that's, a, that's a probably more time than we have time for <laughs> to tell that story. But I was then working for Gamma, the French agency. I'd been, I was like... Dave Kennelly and I were the last two guys that the old weekly Life magazine signed on in mm-hmm. 1972. Life ended. I, I had left Vietnam to come back. David was still in Asia. And Life magazine went out of business in December of 72. And, you know, he'd, he'd been working for UPI and had about three or four months working for Life. And I had been probably a year and a half working for Life. And we were both like, this is going to be our, our world, our, our, our photo life. And then to have that, like everybody else at Life Magazine, pulled out from under your, uh, your feet was a real jolt. It was one of those periods, Look Magazine had gone out of business the year before, Life went out of business, and everybody was kind of like, oh my God, photojournalism is dead, it's terrible, nobody's ever going to you know, send us anywhere to do anything. And I then ended up joining Gamma, the French agency, and just started doing stories all over the world in ways I probably never even would have been able to do with life. And it was a great couple of years at Gamma, which, after which I, I joined up with Bob Pledge and we started Contact Press Images, and that's, you know, 42 years ago. Amazing. The numbers don't make sense. <laughs> way, the numbers are way too big. Because 42 years ago, that's something that old people say. Through Gamma, I had been the official photographer for one of the French candidates who ran for president of France in the spring of 74, Valérie Giscard d'Estaing, who actually won. And I was, as part of this deal, I was flying on his plane everywhere. And like all the other photographers, including this one wonderful French uh, photographer named Alan Nogues, they'd have to get up at four in the morning and get in their car and drive for four hours to get to wherever I was going to be arriving by jet, you know, hours later. And I'm sure, especially the fact that I was an American, I think they were kind of ticked off that an American was photographing this French candidate. But the fact that I was American and didn't speak very good French meant that I was not a security (laughs) issue because they could say whatever they wanted and I had no idea what they were saying. And actually that was pretty good because all I did is worry about pictures. I was not trying to overhear what the all you know what all the brainiacs were were saying, but it was it was a tough time, and I had only met Nogues when I got to Paris. I I had seen the work he did the year before in uh, the Sahel of of Africa on the the great seventy three seventy four Sahel drought and famine. A lot of a lot of people starved to death out in the in the desert. And he'd done some really impressive pictures. When I finally met him in Paris, I was very complimentary. And then after six weeks of the campaign, he kind of was not a big fan of mine because it was like, oh, Burnett, you know, mm. he, gets in the, he gets in that plane and I have to drive for five hours to get to the same event. <laughs> he was kind of pissed off at me, to be honest. 
Anyway, we get through the presidential uh, event. That was the middle of May. I, I came home finally in, in June. And on, I think, July 1st, Juan Perón, who I, had, I knew about, obviously, everybody knew who Perón was, you know, and later Evita was made into a show which probably made him more famous than even his, his actual, during his, his lifetime. But I hear that Juan Perón has died, and I did what I often did in those days, which was I got on a plane the next day and went to Buenos Aires. The town, you know, the whole country was more or less shut down, and I had to get my bag off the plane. I mean, it was really, you had to do your own, get your own baggage off the plane. Went downtown where the Time Magazine folks, we, you know, in the good old days of Telex, which, you know, people don't know what a Telex machine is. It was like the world's heaviest, slowest email machine. You know, it was like <laughs> using a telephone line at about 50 baud. You know, now mm. we're into the hundreds of thousands of baud. 50 baud, but you could type a letter in New York and it would punch that letter in Buenos Aires or Saigon or whatever. Telex was this great deal. So I had let them know I was coming and they had a, an official credential ready for me. Okay. So I get the credential, I leave my suitcases, I grab my cameras and I walk down to the Congress building, which is surrounded by mourning Argentines, tens of thousands of them, maybe hundreds of thousands. And I can't see anything. And then I notice there's a truck, a TV truck parked in the middle of this crowd. And I make my way through the crowd. I climb up the stairs of the TV truck. I see there's one little space that I could go sit down. And I get over and I sit down. And sitting next to me is Alan Noguess from France, who had just arrived a couple of hours okay. before. The guy who, who kind of had it in for me because yeah. I was getting sort of the, the red carpet treatment. So we shoot for an hour, and we were, I mean, t chatting buddies, as it were. And we, then as, as sun went down and it became dark, we said, okay, I think we need to go inside and see what's doing. So we go knock on the door, and the, and the Congress is this huge building. It's like the U.S. Capitol building. Had to walk around about five doors to get to the press entrance. And we get there, and we knock on this big door, and the door opens, and they said, what do you want? I said, we're members of the press. And I showed my pass. We start to walk in, and he puts his hand on Noguesa's shoulder and said, he doesn't have a credential. He can't come in. And I said, he's my assistant. He's carrying all my gear. He has to come with me. Well, okay. And we get in, and Noguesa is shocked that I have. He said, oh, but Dave, uh, merci, Dave. He didn't. I think he just couldn't believe that I would not just leave him at the door. Mm -hmm. But I've never wanted to beat anybody that way. I want to beat him with a good picture. So anyway, we get inside, and it's in this amazing building, just like the U.S. Capitol Rotunda. In fact, I thought of this during the George H.W. Bush uh, lying in state two weeks ago, because I, I was down in Washington for that. And you're looking up into the dome. And you know that there's a picture up there. Now, in this case, they actually put some cameras up there, and they let, at one point they did let a couple of photographers very briefly go up to do mm -hmm. that picture. You know, going back to Kennedy and he, I think even Eisenhower, um, Kennedy was probably the first one. That was 1963, and Bob Gomel, the great life photographer, made this wide-angle yeah. shot from the top of the dome, and it's kind of became the standard. So we're all kind of, we're under this dome, and there is open casket and we're in the little photo area and the way they had it set up his feet were as he's lying in his coffin his feet were facing toward us so basically from the photo stand all you could get was kind of the bottoms of his shoes 
and then the cotton that was stuffed into his nose because oh, it was like you yeah. know we're looking at a, at somebody who's laying down and we're both along you know we're kind of looking up around here thinking there's got to be some better way to do this so at one point having not slept for you know days i wander off into the little uh, press coffee bar and i said to the barista I said uh, who's in charge of uh, I don't know how I put it in my really bad Spanish, but I said, who's in charge? I said, oh, that would be the president of the Senate. And then there was a wedding photographer who happened to be there, and I started talking to this guy about it, and I said, well, do you know who the wedding, who the president of the Senate is? He said, no, well, why don't we go find out? So I kind of look around, make sure we're not being followed, and we mm. wander down the hallway, and there's this big door, you know, president of the Senate, and we knock on the door, and this old codger, you know, probably younger than I am now, but this old codger opens the door. What do you want? And the wedding photographer, my new friend, he says, we're looking for the president of the Senate. He's in a meeting. You'll have to wait. And he closes the door. We go and we just sit on a little bench for, you know, five minutes, 10 minutes. When you're waiting around like that, every minute seems yeah. like an hour. And then we tried it again after 10 minutes. What do you want? Uh, we need to speak to the president of the Senate. Well, he's not here. He's in a meeting. Come back. And so we closed the door again. We did that three or four times. Probably we were there half an hour. And I'm the whole time looking down the hallway to see if Alan Nogues <laughs> is skulking around the same way I am. And at one point, I see him see me. Uh -oh. And he leaps behind a column so as not to be seen. It was like... You know, if you ever looked at Spy versus Spy in that yes, magazine, uh -huh. yeah, we were definitely jerking each other's chain that way. So finally, you know, long, long story short, a younger guy opens the door the next time, and I jump in and start. Actually, I said in my bad Spanish, I said, in every funeral of every great man, President Kennedy, Prime Minister Churchill, there's always one photo from overhead to show the majesty of the, mm -hmm. and I didn't even speak Spanish that well, but it was like, I was slinging it pretty good. And the guy was like, yeah, hey, that's a good idea. So he then became our little guide. And okay. eventually we got up, the only people who got up to the top of the thing, and all of a sudden, we're at the top of the stairs, and there's this railing, you know, marble railing, just like there is in the U.S. Capitol. And I looked over, and I, you know, it's one of those things, like just before you look at it, you make sure, you re hit the rewinds to make sure there's actually film in there. <laughs> yeah. You put, the, I had a 105 and a 35, and the 180 in my pocket, in my, in my fishing bag. And I looked over the edge, and then the first time ever, that in that moment, I saw... Juan Perón looking at me because that was and that was really the first time I saw him because from down below you couldn't mm -hmm. you could see who the mourners were coming by but right. you didn't really see him and I shot like six frames of the 105 and six frames of the 35 and then this giant claw belonging to the guard who was in charge of the stairwell who shouldn't have let us up there grabs me and we start to go and we're walking down the stairs and I said to the wedding photographer said, okay, it's our little secret, right? We don't tell anybody. And I rewound that film and jammed it into my pocket. You know, your right front pocket is always the pocket where the good film goes okay. after you finish it. And then that ended up being a full page in Time Magazine the next week. And finally, on the, at the end of that week, before we saw the magazine, but after they had closed it in New York, I ran into No Guess again. Mm -hmm. And he said, Dave, dis-moi, you know, tell me. I said, yeah, I got upstairs. 
because he had been unable to get upstairs, and we were both looking for it. So at that point, I felt we were, we were back to being even. On all those hours that I had been in the airplane and he was in the car, all that was kind of washed away, and we got to start over as friends. And that was how I wanted to beat him, not by leaving him out in the cold, but making yeah. a picture. And oh. The cool thing was that the next week, because I was really the only press person that had that picture, the newsstands would take Time Magazine and open it up to that full page and with clothespins put it up like 10 of them on their newsstand because mm-hmm. that was the picture of the week. So, yeah, I mean, it did make me wish I had been able to see Juan Perón alive, and I never, I never got to see him, you know, as the general. But, yeah, I mean, you know, you never know where a picture is going to come from. You always have to try and outsmart yourself. You have to try and imagine where that picture is going to be. And this was one of those things where a combination of pushiness and luck, I think, got me into the right spot. And then the thing is, when you get into that place where you're into the the right spot, then don't screw it up. Yeah, And I've heard um, you mention that someone says of you, oh, that, oh, there's Dave Burnett, the guy who gets into the room and then disappears. Right. That, actually, somebody's, I was introduced by some like Tom Daschle's secretary or some press secretary once that way. And honestly, that is the greatest tribute that you could say about somebody in our business, is that we're not there affecting anything. And occasionally we do, but it's like usually pretty inadvertent. We're really just trying to be a fly on the wall and a fly with a camera. So tell me about that about that dance, though, because you're in a room with a bunch of muckety-mucks. They're mm-hmm. busy negotiating or doing whatever they're doing. You're floating around trying to be inconspicuous, mm-hmm. but there's sometimes when you see a shot and you have to think, how far do I push this? How, how much far? do I... No, that, that is totally... I had... I mean, I, I did this picture of uh, Ayatollah Khomeini who I had been waiting for days to try and get into his inner sanctum. Mm-hmm. He had just returned from France. The, it was the moment of the Iranian Revolution was the return of Khomeini, and the Shah had left Iran for the last time. And it was really trying to, you know, he would come to the window of this school where he was headquartered, and thousands of well-wishers would be there, and we had all worked it heavily from the outside. And again, through persistence and not being a jerk, sometimes those things work hand in mm-hmm. hand, I managed to, get, to convince this guy to take me into his office. And later, a bunch of people got in, but I think I was the first one in there. And the door opens, and he's just as, he's, uh, as the door opened, I see him putting the teacup back on the plate of the other uh, of Ayatollah Kalkali, who later became known as the hanging judge. I mean, it was everybody in this picture turned out to be somebody important. Mm-hmm. But it was just what I saw. Bang, made a frame. Get that frame. Get ready. Make that picture. Because you don't know. He, he doesn't care that you're there. I'm not there going to be his friend. Yeah. But we got in, in the room, and there was a small room. It was about an 8 or, by 8 or 10 by 10 room. And as soon as I got in, I just went to the opposite corner of where he was and kind of slid my back against the wall and kind of slid down into a, a crouch and just sat there and wanted not to be thrown out of the room. And a few minutes later, some other religious mullahs were brought in, and I have a picture of him in between their black capes. Yeah. And 
And then I got a picture of him telling, I don't know if he was telling a joke or something, but he's laughing. It's like, how many pictures did wow, you ever yeah, see of Khomeini laughing? You know, it's like, I think I have one of the few. And then he left to go to prayers or something, and I stayed in the room. I figured maybe mm-hmm. he'll be back. And I had my old hardy fishing bag was my camera bag in those days. It was, you know, that sort of pretty uh, muslin colored thing with the leather trim that everybody would take to the North Country in Scotland and catch trout. I was just throwing my cameras in there. And I had the camera bag there, and it's amazing. I have this picture of him walking back into the room, and I had just left my bag kind of right in the way. He almost tripped on my camera bag, which (laughs) that would not have been good. Um, But, yeah, I mean, it was... uh, And then, you know, he he was there a few more minutes, went to the window and waved everybody. I got a couple more pictures, and then it was like, I got my pictures. I'm, I got to go ship this stuff. And that, Iran was a really interesting case. Before digital, before you could just get on a phone line and send pictures, you had to send your film. So uh, I was working for Time magazine, and my good friend Olivier Rabot was shooting for Newsweek, and we often went out shooting together. You know, a couple of times my editors were like, well, why are you with Newsweek? I said, you know what? I got to be with somebody that I know and trust, and he's a good friend. And we may be two feet apart somewhere. We're going to take very different pictures. Mm-hmm. And so if that is what it takes for me to feel comfortable about shooting, that's what I'm going to do. If you don't like the way we're shipping film, then you come to Tehran and take care of it. Yeah. You know, that, that choice to stay in the room is sort of really can be a real test because you've, you've chosen a spot, you've chosen a location, mm-hmm. and you're thinking... If I stay put, something will happen. But at the same time, I can imagine you thinking, maybe I should move. What maybe, else could I do? You're yeah, always t- no. You never are happy about it. You're always second guessing yourself. Like, where else? Where, where's there a better picture? When he goes to the window, and I had been outside any number of times when he came to the window. So I'm thinking, well, and I, I think I sh- once again, you know, you're always like second guessing yourself. I had a 20 on, thinking, oh, that'll be great. Well, 20 was too wide. I should have mm-hmm. gone with a 28. My picture was okay, but there are all these little things that you, when you have a little more time to think about it and you're looking at your contact sheets, you think, well, I could have done it another way and maybe I should have, but I got what I got, you know? Yeah. And the thing is, there's no script. Like every day in Tehran, I mean, I mean, I might hear that there was an anti-Shah demonstration or a, a pro-Shah demonstration or something, but usually stuff would happen that you was on nobody's script. It was just real events unfolding the way real events do. And so you were relying, in my case, I was relying on the Time Magazine stringer who happened also to be the Associated Press correspondent. Everybody had more than one job. And when he would hear something, you know, somebody would call him and say, Esfan Square, there's shooting going on, and we'd, we'd go there. And sometimes you'd get there and nothing would be going on, and sometimes you'd be right in the middle of it. And the thing is, you didn't know in the morning what you were going to be doing by 3 in the afternoon. It was just a big question mark, like, how do I get through this thing? How do I, you know, where do I go that I make the best use of my time? You know, I mean, I think now, you know, working in Afghanistan and Iraq, the people that are in Syria, man, that those people have I have nothing but respect for them because you don't know what you're going to get. You don't even know really what's safe or mm. where where is a safe place to be. And certainly in the last 40 years, 
the press has gone from having some little cloak, uh, minor cloak of immunity or safety to being targeted now. People yeah. target the press. It's terrible. It's been an amazing 2018, and it's sometimes hard to believe that we've been here doing this show for going on 13 years, 450 episodes and counting with some of the world's best photographers. I count myself so lucky for not only still being here with the show, but the many moments that I've sat down and talked with photographers whose work I love and respect. It's been all the better that I've been able to share all these conversations with you every week. I think this season was amazing, and I can't wait to bring you even more in 2019, including our 500th episode. And I can't thank you enough for coming along on the ride with me and the support that you've given me and the team over these many years. We've been working hard towards 100 new Patreon supporters over the past month, and as of today, we are only 40 people away from reaching that goal. There are thousands of you who download and listen to this show every week from all over the world, and not everyone chooses or can afford to support a show like this. I get it. But if you can't afford it, and the show is making a difference in your work and your life, join our effort today. Because though $5 a month might seem insignificant, coming from a few hundred of you, well, it's something that is really invaluable. So begin 2019 by helping us to reach our goal of 100 new Patreon supporters by committing to a recurring donation of $5 or more a month. You'll be helping us to make the 2019 season the very best ever. Well, this whole idea of sort of picking your spot and then just and trusting that something will happen is is exemplified by your image of um, Mary Decker and oh, Zonabad no. at the '84 Olympics. And if I'm understanding this right, that the position where you ended up was as a result of the fact of not being able to get position at the at the finish line. I was line. just is that right? fed up with being next to uh, like in '84. You could still. As a rule, everybody that had these big setups at the finish line would have a tripod and on which they'd have like five other cameras clamped on the legs of that pod. Mm -hmm. It was just like equipment overload. And after five days or a week of it, I just wanted to be somewhere else. I wanted not to be in the middle of all these other photographers. And I started walking down, walking down the final hundred yards of the track. And I found there was a bench and a couple of guys sitting on it, and there was room on the bench to sit. And I just said, hey, guys, can you fit one more in there? And that was, they said, yeah, come on no. over. For me, it was, it was just a chance to be somewhere different. And the, the funny thing about, that's one of those stories that is a, uh, an, an example of how chance plays into everything. Because, you know, I didn't have a great idea of where I wanted to be. I just wanted not to be at the finish line. Well, Neil Leifer, who you mentioned a minute ago, Neil, one of the great sports photographers, 
he was down. I don't know he had set up for something he thought was going to be the magic picture at the mm-hmm. finish line when Mary Decker is finally going to get her gold medal at four years after the U.S. team was denied the chance to be in the Olympics at Moscow. We boycotted the games because of the Afghanistan invasion. Walter Yos, another great sports mm-hmm. fo- uh, photographer for Sports Illustrated and others, was over at turn one where Mary Decker's mother was. And he was going to get the embrace shot and the, get the flag. And, you know, this is the beginning when people were just starting to get their country flag and run around the track. Dave Kennerly was over at turn three. It was a late afternoon race, and the last little bits of light, really nice warm light, would be hitting the runners as they came around turn three. And I was just like between turn four and the finish line, happy to be out of the finish line area and just take, you know, taking what I could get. Mm-hmm. And it turned out to be where the accident happened. Zola Bud, the young South African runner, tried to take the lead from Mary on a fourth or fifth lap of a seven-lap race, and they collided, and that's where Mary fell to the ground. And, you know, it's, it's so interesting now because, like, now I shoot with these Sony A9s, 20 frames per second, raw files. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're really packing a lot of information in a, in a very short period of time onto a memory card. I was then shooting with Canon F1s. It was the introduction, really, of Fujifilm. That was one of the great screw This is I don't know if people know this, but one of the all-time great marketing screw-ups that Kodak made, and they made a number of them, was to not be the official film of the 84 American-based 84 Olympics. And they blew it off, and Fuji came in and just took it over. Yeah, and that, that and they had the one-hour turnaround lab, and they were finally able to introduce American photographers to Fujifilm, and none of us knew what Fujifilm was. The 84 Olympics really was a gigantic step forward for Fuji. But I remember shooting Fuji 100, Push One Stop. It was an E6 film, and it's a beautiful film. And push one stop, like the colors were even richer and contrastier and everything. Anyway, shooting like 250 at 2.8. And had a 400 2.8 and an 85 and maybe some kind of a zoom, although I'm not really even sure I was shooting with zooms in 84. Probably more likely I just had prime lenses. But, you know, you'd kind of get them with a 400 as they came out of the corner and put that camera down and grab the 85. And as they'd go right in front of you, you'd shoot with the 85. What... A lot of young photographers aren't even aware of probably is that shooting with an SLR, you only see what's going on when the mirror is down. Mm-hmm. And when you're shooting a picture, the mirror is up and letting the light hit the film, or in this case, now the sensor. You know, mirrorless cameras kind of get around that, but for the whole history of reflex cameras for, you know, 50 or 60 years, it's all been about the flickering of that mirror and just showing you a little bit what's going on and you hope you're in focus. You're not really, you got to either focus and look or shoot. You couldn't do both. Yeah. And so I would, I had follow focused as they came in front of me and I just went bada, 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 bada and shot as they came by me, not really knowing what I was seeing, but I, you, you'd see Mary's red uniform in places that it shouldn't have been in that picture. And that was, the moments that she was falling to the ground. And then I see her lying on the ground as the other runners are going by, and I grab the 400. And I remember having what seemed like a five-minute conversation with myself about 
making sure you're in focus. Just take a little extra time and let's, because these were all obviously before autofocus was even invented. Let's just make sure we're sharp here. And I just took, and I'm sure that actually took like a half a second and not five minutes. But, but it can feel like it's sticking forever. It can yeah. feel like, and then I shot five or six frames. And that's the whole thing. On a race like this, where they've got a seven-lap race, you're constantly, every time they go by you and you figure how many pictures did I take, you know, and, and five frames a second, you know, ba 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 and then you're looking at your camera to see, do I have enough film for the next lap? And if not, can I get it rewound and reloaded in 45 seconds? Because that's when they're going to be back here. Yeah. Well, well, that same and, issue yeah. is what was happening with you uh, on the day that Nick Oat made his famous pho photograph, right? Because you were, the, the scene was playing out where these children had been subject to napalm. Yeah, the napalm, uh, the Vietnamese Air Force plane, uh, it... Trang Bang had dropped the napalm in a place that was too close to where the townspeople were, and a lot of people were injured, and both soldiers and a lot of civilians. I mean, and including obviously Kim Phuc, who you know, I when I tell this story, it's really interesting being at a place where one of the most famous pictures of your life was taken. Yeah, I mean, I was every when you look at the full frame of Nick's picture on the right side of the frame is a guy with a and fatigues and a, and a helmet. Re, he's obviously rewinding mm -hmm. a roll of film. That's there's that posture. You can tell he's rewinding. If you're a photographer, you can you can see that. But that and people have always thought that was me because it's you know famously I was changing film at that moment. But in actually behind where Nick was, probably fifty or. 100 feet. I had an old knobwind Leica Model 3, which was, if you didn't take the tongue of the film and cut out an extra inch, it took forever to load this camera. And I never bothered to really recut the film so that it would load easily. And I'm like trying to get the film and trying to get the film in. And the plane's coming in. I take a couple of shots and I'm trying to reload this camera. And it was in those moments that Nick and a Newsweek uh, reporter started to see people running out of all that smoke around the pagoda. And they just, you know, I remember seeing Nick just take off, mm -hmm. running towards these people down the road where we had all kind of stayed back from the edge of the village. And his, you know, picture happened in one of those, those little, those seconds. And then a few, literally like a few seconds later, they arrive where this little gaggle of TV people were, and one of the TV reporters took out his canteen and was pouring water over her wounds, trying to cool her skin off and stop the burning, which, you know, it was a valiant effort in a way, but, you know, she'd already really been burned badly. Again, this is something that doesn't have a script. This is some terrible thing happening in front of you, and how do you react to it? You know, how do you... What do you do? Well, you know, you take pictures because that's what you do. That's what you're there for. I mean, it couldn't have been more than a minute or maybe two minutes until they just decided, let's get these kids to a hospital. And Nick dropped the kids at the provincial hospital on the way back to Saigon. You know, when we got back, I was shooting that day for the New York Times. And so part of the Associated Press Network 
I took my film to the AP to get it processed and to send a couple of specials to the New York Times, which you know they didn't use. Obviously, they used Nick's picture, as did every newspaper in the world. But there was something about being in the dark room, kind of waiting for my stuff to get done, and being there when that first print comes out of the uh, you know the wet print. Just it was in the hypo for maybe a minute or something, just to keep it from fading. And then they washed it, and then the Darkroom technician came out with this wet 5 by 7 print, and we're all looking at it. And I think my reaction was the same as every photographer who ever saw somebody else's picture from a place where you were, which is, do I have a better picture than that, or do I have Mm -hmm. something as good as this? And I remember just looking at the picture thinking, that's pretty good. I don't think anything I have is, is as powerful as that. But I didn't know. You know, no one, only... Four or five people in the world had seen that picture at that moment, you know. And then Horst Foss, who was the AP photo editor and kind of had been in Vietnam forever. And, you know, he was, wherever Horst was, he was the de facto bureau chief, pretty much, because he just had that sense of moral imperative surrounding his presence. But I remember him saying, you do good work today, Nikot. Good work. And go send it. And they still had to dry the print and take it up to the telephone office and put it on the little transmitter. But, and I remember going back to my office at the Time Life uh, uh, office and sat at the... I still have the, the, the notes I typed up that day just saying, describing what happened at Trang Bang and then mentioning at the bottom that Nick Ut from AP got a good picture and the negative is going to New York. So if you're going to use this picture... Get a print made in New York. Don't go with a wire photo. One of my shots ran next to Nick's picture on one of the opening double pages in Life the next week. And that picture went on to be, you know, arguably one of the two or three most famous pictures of the century, certainly Mm -hmm. from the Vietnam War. Your time in in Vietnam is something that I wanted to to talk about. Mm Because a lot of the pictures that we've talked about, there was sort of an obvious story that you were there to document, whether it was a sports or a political or, or, or whatever. But your time in Vietnam was a, an opportunity where you had to go out and find the story because, you know, the war was all encompassing. Yeah, right. and it Is wasn't it, really in Saigon. You had to go find the story. Right, so yeah. tell me about the challenge of being basically in a foreign country in the midst of a war in a place where you didn't sort of know the language and you know all the things that you have to sort of work your way through and you have the onus of I have to find a story well the US infrastructure was still pretty heavy when I got there which means they had planes from Saigon to Da Nang to Way to Quang Nai to Quinyon down to Canto and there were these planes, it was like a little airline going every day. And they, the rule still was that if you got to a helicopter pad and somebody was going where you wanted to go, if they could, they would take you. And, you know, there was a, it, it was definitely not the press is the enemy of the people attitude. Mm-hmm. And even later when people got to be, you know, you'll, you can still run into cranky historians who say the press lost the Vietnam War. And I think that's totally garbage. You know, the people who lost the Vietnam War, if you can say it was lost, were the people who lied about what was going on there, um, you know, in the military and in the government. But when you got down to a very, like, elemental unit level and, like, the guys in the bush, it was 
almost universally people appreciated the fact that you had gotten out into some crappy place and you didn't have to be there. That was the big thing. I mean, I remember these kids and they were all my age. I was 24. In fact, I was probably older than most of them. And you'd get out to some fire base and it's like, and wait a minute, you don't have to be here and you're here? Mm -hmm. I said, yeah, man, came to tell your story. came to see what's going on. I mean, for me, it was always about, I had this curiosity about Vietnam. I had been, had a hockey injury, a back operation, and I was uh, 4F as far as the military was concerned. But, you know, I had this interest to know, I guess, the curiosity that most press people have. That's kind of what drives the press are curious people. You know, we want to know and try and explain things, even the things that can't very easily be explained, but you're always trying to. You know, as I say, you could still get a plane to Da Nang, and uh, by the end of my second year, those resources were getting much thinner. And, for example, when we went to Trang Bang that day, we just hired a car and driver from the local hotel, you know, the guys that hang out in front of the hotel looking for a client, and he drove us up and back that day. So it had changed in 71 into 72. It changed quite a bit in terms of when you wanted to go somewhere, you had to just make your way there. You'd maybe get on an Air Vietnam flight because the Americans had stopped flying so many uh, support missions. So you'd get on an Air Vietnam or you'd get a car and you'd just drive to wherever you had to go. Um, but yeah, just again, trying to figure out where that was was not always easy. And I, fortunately, I worked with some pretty good reporters. The, the Time and Life magazine reporters were smart people. And when you worked with somebody who was working on a story, that necessarily increased the chances that your pictures would get used because you would be mm-hmm. you know, with them and that's what they were going to write about. I mean, I'd say the one interesting thing for me at the beginning of my decision to go in 1970 was... John Derniak was then the editor, photo editor at Time Magazine, and he could be a pretty tough customer, but he always appreciated when photographers would come to him with ideas, because I think he felt that, that an idea was something you could never replace. And when I told John I was going to Vietnam and I, was, I didn't know how long I was going to stay there, he decided, I think really just as a favor to get my airline ticket paid, because I bought a, a San Francisco Saigon one way ticket just because I didn't know if I was going to stay two weeks or two months mm-hmm. and I ended up staying two years but I, I went to see John for the last time before I left and he gave me a big box of film which was a, a real gift because film was hard to come by in, in Saigon and he said okay give you a $500 guarantee and the day rate in those days was 125 so it's basically like a four day assignment or guarantee uh, he said, do, do a story, Children of War. So I, I said, well, John, uh, what exactly do you... No, and he just cut me right off. Mm-hmm. I was trying to figure out where he was going with it. He said, no, no, you're the journalist. You tell me what's going on. So that was one little light bulb that went on in my head. When I got to Saigon and I started kind of making my way around, I became friends relatively quickly with a photographer named Philip Jones Griffiths, who's a Mm -hmm, magnum photographer who ended up doing this wonderful book called Vietnam Inc. Philip had been there for years and had really invested his life on trying to tell the story he wanted to tell about American involvement in Vietnam. And, you know, I was 
trying to get in touch with the orphanage and the refugee camp and all these things. And after a few weeks of this, Philip, one day at lunch, he just kind of yelled at me and he said, said, you know, being in, in Vietnam is not all these little stories. It's not a little story for Time Magazine or Life Magazine. So you're, here's what you have to do. So put 50 rolls of film in your rucksack and go to Da Nang and don't come back until you've shot every roll. And in a way, it was like the best advice I ever had, which was I was so concerned about trying to get this story for Time Magazine done that I was kind of missing the forest for mm -hmm. the trees. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know that I really kind of stepped up to the plate like as much as I, now looking back at it, would have liked to think I had, but I think it was a real jolt. That was the other little light bulb going on in my head. It was Philip just like, it's not about like trying to make all these constructive stories. You just have to get out and live the experience of being in Vietnam. Yeah. And it's like, you know, and it's all these places that you're thinking about, but just go be a photographer and go observe and go investigate and go see and go photograph. So it was really a, um, you know, between what Derniak and Philip had said to me, I think I was kind of, I probably, I was 24. I don't think I even knew what the hell I was doing as a, as a photographer. I wanted to be a photojournalist. I mm -hmm. wanted to work. I'd been working for Time Magazine for the better part of three years. But I look back now, and I wasn't a very good photographer. I must have somehow been irresistibly charming for them to keep me <laughs> going. But I have to say, I try and pass that on to young photographers now. It's much harder because... The resources available to photographers are much thinner. There aren't mm -hmm. John Derniaks out there who can give you a, a seven-day assignment or a three-week assignment, all expenses paid. Those, those resources have really dried up, and they make trying to be that young photographer a much tougher thing to do. Uh, on the other hand, you know, people have ideas. You know, if you have your, your digital cameras, you're not so Once you have your cameras and a couple of memory cards... You're not stuck with the cost of film and processing mm -hmm. that we used to have to deal with. So I don't know. It's like there's always some new wrinkle that comes up when these technological changes happen. And, you know, something, a door opens and a door closes, not always at the same time. But, you know, you can take your phone now and go be a photographer. And that's, uh, I have to say, maybe not an altogether bad thing that it's kind of, I miss the fact that the, the requisite craft that came, you know, and every time now I'm shooting with my 4x5 and I forget to bring my light meter, and I was like, mm -hmm. okay, can I really remember what, what you know, a, a room light situation? Is it 60 at 4 or 125 at 5.6 or 30 at 2.8? You know, as someone who hated printing thin negatives, I still overexpose <laughs> everything. <laughs> That's stop or two. A little too hot, but... Uh, before we started recording, you got a call about a portrait that you took of a celebrity that uh, recently yeah. passed away. And that brought to mind the idea of the value of ownership of mm -hmm. you know an archive of work that a photographer has made over over decades that you know there's one value to it when it's initially made, but as time passes, historically, those images can sometimes have a value. They go beyond what they may have initially been created. Is that what sort of spurred uh, you to co-found uh, contact back in the 70s? Well, I, I, I became, not right in the beginning of my career, I started shooting in 68 professionally, and I have almost everything I ever shot. 
Mm -hmm. I have the negatives and the originals. A few things have been lost, you know, stuff gets lost, send it over to the New York Times and it just never comes back. That's happened. But by and large, most of what I have shot, I have the best versions of it. I mean, you know, in the 70s when you were shooting a color story, I was by then shooting Kodachrome pretty much all the time. And you would try and make duplicates in the camera. Instead of just one great Ernst Haas picture, mm -hmm. you know, I'd shoot 10 or 12 frames. And then uh, the best one would stay in the U.S., but then we'd send one to France, Italy, Germany, and Japan. And those were the big markets. And if they got an original Kodachrome, and it, technically it would be way better than any Ektachrome dupe that you could ever send them. That's what you tried to help sell your, your, your stuff with. But... Having the ownership of the pictures was always a big deal, and, and now I see it in ways that I never really understood it. As a, as a young guy, you think, oh, yeah, well, okay, they want to own the stuff. Well, you should keep the ownership of your pictures. You should never sign these terrible work-for-hires where you mm -hmm. shoot for you know 150 bucks a day, and they own the pictures, and they own all rights to them, and you can maybe use them on your website or something. That sucks, and... Actually, one of the things that kind of is getting my attention lately is, you know, photo editors are usually the first people who are asked to judge photo contests. And Ken Jureski, one of my colleagues from Contact, brought up this point in a blog. He's a really good writer, too, actually. J-A-R-E-C-K-E, KennethJureski.com. Ken kind of started beating the the hammer over the fact that very often contests are judged by editors who in their day job are asking photographers to sign really onerous mm. contracts yeah. and where you have to give up way more rights or re-syndication rights, go to the magazine or the agency or whatever it is. Those people should not be allowed to be treated like the great, you know, I mean... And, and these are people who are friends of mine, but I'm sorry, if that's the way that their legal department is forcing them to work, then they shouldn't also be rewarded with the, you know, the, uh, the laurels of judging a big contest just because they might be, in fact, very good editors. But this, you know, the photographers are always the last one to be considered for anything. The last to get paid, the last to be given rights to their own work. You know, enough is enough of that. I mean, we have, at the same time, every job that you might turn down on principle, there'll be 10 other people standing in line to do it for less money and for worse terms than you were mm -hmm. already turned down. So, you know, sometimes we're our own worst enemy, probably most of the, <laughs> most of the time. But it's definitely, uh, you know, ownership of your work. And in a way, the physicality of it, when, when you worked in film and you had to send the film in, then getting the actual film back was a big issue. Now, shooting digital, everything should be copied on your own drives before you even yeah. send it into a client. So at least you have it. You know, maybe they won't be so... Uh, you know, so so point on about the the the, the fine points of a, of a contract, but you know when it was film, it was a big deal. And I I did a shoot, the first actual magazine shot shoot I did in the field in Vietnam was for U.S. News, who thought for their 125 a day that they got to own the pictures. And when their U.S. News went out of business and their 
archives were donated to the Library of Congress. I happened to be at Library of Congress a couple of years ago, and I actually found my negatives, and I couldn't believe it, but I found mm-hmm. in this whole U.S. news thing from October, November of 1970, a not very interesting story, but but I found the story and, and the negs that were there. And the problem is, because it came through from the magazine, and I never filed copyright on the stuff, I didn't okay. even know what that was at the time, you know, the odds of my ever getting them back... Are, are minimal, but you know there was there was a we were out there with a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army who became kind of famous in the helicopter assault world, Anthony something or I forget his last name, but you know it's just when you try and at least learn from your mistakes. The one thing I would say the the most important thing you can do is to keep copies of your stuff and don't sign these things where you give away all the rights. Yeah. That, and then one, the other most important thing, which I'll just say now because maybe I'll forget otherwise, is that don't just worry uh, yourself about your career and shooting for other people, but shoot pictures every day, every week of the, your friends, your mm-hmm. family. You know, if you're in college, of your sorority sisters or your fraternity brothers or your bunk mates or whatever. Believe me, those pictures in 40 years will be far more important than some crappy assignment you did. Is that something you feel like you failed to do? I definitely didn't do it. I mean, I just came back from my, one of my college reunions, and we were all goofing off about what it was like to sit around in the Kappa Sig house before lunch and play Bure. I don't have one picture of that, mm. and I really wish I did. But yeah, photograph your own life, too. Don't just figure you have to reach out you know, reach in. Yeah. That's important. Solid advice. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it could be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be in one? Well, I mean, I mentioned Ken Jureski, who's been a, he was in a class that I taught with Bob Pledge at the main photo workshops like 30 some years ago. And then, like we were, I remember thinking, like, wow, this guy can shoot, and he writes a, a very perceptive blog on Medium. But Ken is one of these guys who definitely listens to the Teddy Roosevelt school of speak softly and carry a strong aperture. You know, he's uh, he says it with his pictures. He's also a very good writer, but he really his pictures are very strong and and he, and. I'm sure almost nobody listening to this has, has ever heard of him. If you don't, if you're not somebody that really checks credit lines and news magazines, mm-hmm. and and then uh, you know, for us in the news magazine world, or what used to be the news magazine world, that whole that is a place that has completely changed and morphed into a a lesser beast in the last five to ten years. Yeah. I mean, I worked for Time Magazine for forty odd years. A new photo editor came in, and no one who ever had shot for the magazine before ever got another phone call. Mm. You know, they're trying to remodel it and make it into something of their own. And I have to say, this week's People of the Year to make the Man of the Year, Woman of the Year, uh, the reporters, the truth tellers, they, they, I think they got that one pretty right. You know, I don't know that that world even exists anymore. I mean, I, I worked for Time and Newsweek and U.S. News for a long time. And it was great stuff because every week in the news magazine world, every week was different. You know, politics one week, a feature story on mm-hmm. mining the next week, 
something in sports the next week after that. So it was a wonderful time, and I have no, no, nothing but really great joy of what I was able to do. But the world changes, and you have to try and change with it a little bit. Yeah. Well, David, thank you for sharing so much of your time with me today. I really, really appreciate it. Sure, thank you. Thanks to David for coming on the show, and a special thanks to Doug Kay for helping to make this episode possible. You can find out more about David and his work by visiting davidburnett.com. And as some of you may or may not know, I also have a YouTube channel where I discuss different aspects of photography, from lighting, composition, and a whole lot more. I do this with the help of images that listeners submit to the Candid Frame Flickr pool. I recently shared the mic with my friend Olaf Staba for an episode you don't want to miss. You can check out the TCF Flickr pool and our YouTube channel by clicking in the link in the show notes and the website. And my new book, Making Photographs, Developing a Personal Visual Workflow, is now available. If you've ever been stuck or are struggling with making good images on a consistent basis, this book is meant for you. I believe that it can and will help you to learn a whole new way of seeing. You can order the book today. And when you place your order from the Rocky Nook website, use the promo code PORELLO40 to receive 40% off the list price. Check out the website and the show notes for the link. And if you want to keep up with all things Candid Frame, sign up for our mailing list and you'll receive three free copies of my previously published ebooks. And if you like what you've been hearing on the show, please take the time to write a review in the iTunes store as it helps our ranking and create greater awareness of the show. Thanks to Tommy Japan from Japan for his five-star review. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon, or you can make a one-time contribution via PayPal. You'll find the link for both in the show notes and the website. Thanks to Martin Benfeld, Gina Williams, Chadwick Freeman, Bjorn Eric, Pierre-Francois Ducroix, and Stuart Miller for their recent contributions. Thanks, guys, for having my back. And if you want to easily access every episode of The Candid Frame, download the Candid Frame app. It's available for both Apple iOS and Android, and it's free. Download it today. You'll find it where everything else is in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at the other martintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at ebodyonex. And from me and everyone at The Candid Frame, I hope that your 2019 is filled with joy, laughter, and love. And this is Ibadi and X, and this is The Candid Frame.